Today's a very exciting day. Um, I hope you have read chapter 4. It is one of the most uplifting chapters in all of Scripture. It's very positive and purposeful. And you probably, like myself, after you read it, were just ready to conquer the world, right? Um, It is the wonderful story of Cain and Abel. And there's just no better image of brotherly love than what we see in this story. So I know you're as excited as I am um, in going through this, but I actually am excited because the story of Cain and Abel is a perfect next step in our conversation that we've been having. And I hope that what you're finding through our time through Genesis 1 through 11 together is that Scripture can... It can say to you whatever you want it to say, and quite literally it does for many people. And you can take a passage, and you can make it say whatever you want it to say. And we are really experts at doing that. But when you begin to look at the entire Scripture together, then that ability begins to go away, because there is a consistency in that message from beginning to end that once you see that, it makes passages like Genesis chapter 4 or all of chapters 1 through 11 have a richer, deeper meaning. And we see so many things with the way God works. And as we go through this, I want to open some prayer. And I want to remind you this is an interactive series, which means you get to stop me and ask questions. Uh, you get to stop me and disagree with me. You get to participate in some group questions that we're going to have, um, and we want you to participate. And if you're our guest and you think, wow, that sounds really weird to do on a Sunday morning, we know that's who we are. We are really weird here. But our purpose for this type of a series is to take it from you sitting and soaking in all that I have prepared for you, because I'm going to tell you right now that there's limited value in that. I know myself You know me, those of you who've been a while, there's limited value in that. Now, once you engage your own reasoning and your own questions and your own ability to engage this topic, then that's where Scripture comes alive. And that is our hope together, is that we find something deeper together than we would just by you listening to me lecture. Although, as you know, that happens a fair amount too. But let's open in prayer, and then we're going to jump in through Genesis chapter 4. Father... God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the consistency of the word. We thank you that we can have not only a relationship with you, but that can continue to grow, can continue to deepen. I thank you that you continue to speak to us. And Father, I'm, <clears throat> I'm thankful for the ways that you work. Just as we have just sung, even when we are in the darkest moments of life, you are there with us and you are good. We thank you for that. Travail your word. Let us take away from this today what we each individually need to take away and what we as a church body need to take away together. To Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 4. Now, we basically have two parts today. We are getting through Genesis chapter 4. I will tell you that the first part is we are going to go through pretty much the whole chapter, and I want to go fairly quickly through that. Once we get through that chapter, I want us to talk about some takeaways. That's where... The really good stuff is. Uh, And so I want you to hang with me. If you think, wow, we're moving really quickly. I know uh, that's intentional. We're going to take some time at the end to pull it all together. And what does this mean for us together? So Genesis chapter four, we're going to begin with verse one and two. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. 
And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Now, one of the primary um, patterns that we are looking for and looking at throughout Genesis 1 through 11, which we've discussed several times now, that we can not only see in these first 11 chapters, but we can also see through all the Old Testament, all the New Testament up to now, and then even what is prophesied still yet to come, we see a familiar pattern of God's work in the world over and over and over again. It begins with creation. Now, so those of you who have been listening, what comes after creation? Uncreation. There is always after a, a period of God's creation to uncreation. Chaos enters into the creation. We've already looked at that with the entrance of sin, the serpent whispering into the ear of Adam or of Eve and Eve whispering into the, into the ear of Adam. And last week we talked about the consequences that came and not staying away from the one tree that God said to stay away from. What we are going to find is that there is then from every move of uncreation, the next movement of what? Recreation. So we see this pattern of God creates, God uncreates, God recreates. Now we've seen that in several places and we even saw a glimpse in chapter 3 last week when not only did God call them out on their sin and not pronounce at some level a curse and in other levels just saying as a result of what you have now entered into in your life, these are going to be some of the consequences. So God didn't ordain all of them. He simply said, some of these things (coughs) I'm doing, I'm going to make this harder for you. But some of these things... Because you have chosen your own way instead of following my way, things are going to be harder. And we've seen that kind of movement of uncreation and they're kicked out of the garden. But yet we still see God's care and love and concern for Adam and Eve because he clothes them. Now we're going to move into this moment of, which is somewhat of a creation moment or even you could say a recreation moment again, in which now Eve gives birth to two sons. Cain, who is older, and Abel. One is a tender of sheep, one is a worker of the ground. One is a farmer, one cares for the livestock. And so as we enter into this, one of the... (coughs) Excuse me, I'm sorry I keep coughing. I have this nagging cough, so I hope you'll just bear with me. It won't go away. The more I talk, the more I cough. That's not a good recipe for preaching on Sunday morning, but just bear with me as I try to hack my way through it. One of the things... In this pattern, it has been crucial for me to understand because I did not grow up understanding this pattern of Scripture. I grew up in a system in which God was always creating, and that meant things were good as long as you were good. Did anyone else come in that kind of a system? Behave yourself, do the right things, worship correctly. God will make sure your life is always good. It really doesn't take long, adults, does it, to recognize that is not really how the world works. Can anybody testify to that? A few of us can. So even at times when you are fully following Jesus, you are fully worshiping him, and you are on the ball, and you are watching after uh, the way that you're living your life, there are moments of uncreation that come within your life. And if you're in a system that says, with Good behavior comes good blessing. With bad behavior comes a removal of blessing. If that is the system in which you have been brought up in, then you become very discouraged in your faith very quickly. Because you begin to wonder, well, what have I done wrong? 
Why is God blessing them and not me? And you know who them is. They're always the people that are the real jerks in life, right? Doesn't it feel like they're the ones always getting the blessing? Okay, so I digress. But some of you will agree with me. All of you actually will agree with me. You've had that moment. You're like, how, is they, how are things going so well for them? Like, there's terrible people. And we have that thought because deep within our mind somewhere, we have a deep-seated belief that says, with good behavior comes blessing, with bad behavior comes cursing. But what if the moments of uncreation are just as God-ordained and just as important as the moments of creation? And so those moments, like we just sang about when we enter into those dark times of our life, are just as meaningful and important and God-inspired as the moments where everything is just going well. See, God is working in the moments of creation, in the moments of uncreation, and in the moments of recreation. He's still there in all those moments, and those moments are not dependent on us being the perfect followers because there has never been such a person, and yet God continues to recreate even in the midst of our mistakes and our brokenness, our lack of faithfulness, and our lack of falling. But as we look at this and we're entering into this story, we are in what appears to be either a moment of recreation or at least a moment of creation. Things are good. The family's growing. Two baby boys are on their way. This is exciting. They're still in that cute phase. They haven't grown out of the cute phase yet. You know what that's like. But they're still in their cute phase. This is a moment of creation for them. Verse 3. In the course of time, in other words, after a while, they grew up. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, depending on who you read, this will be interpreted in a number of of different ways. Some would say that Cain did not provide a sufficient offering. Abel gave of what? The Lord had offered. Now, it's important for us to recognize that at this moment, God has not yet instituted the sacrificial system. That's going to come with Moses sometime later. So this is before this. Now, as I told you a couple of weeks, two or three weeks ago, there are those that believe Genesis 1 through 11 were written during the time of Babylonian exile much, much later after Moses, which would make a little more sense here. I don't know that that's the case. But at this point, God has not yet asked for offerings from humanity, and yet in this time, Cain and Abel are offering them. I say that to you. I just offer that to say this is how we read Scripture, and we go through and we wrestle with some of these questions. We don't always know the answer to them, but we do wrestle with them. But for whatever reason, they both are to bring an offering, and some will interpret it as saying their offering was equal. Cain brought just as good an offering as Abel. Others would say Cain probably brought a better offering 
than Abel. And still others would say Cain brought a subpar offering, and that's why God denied his offering. Now, we don't know. The text itself doesn't tell us. We have no idea exactly what happened here. They both brought offerings from the work of their hands, and God rejected Cain's, and Cain got angry. Now, the problem here is we really need some more context. This is where we really want to know more of the story. What were Cain and Abel's relationship? Was Abel, like, always winning, and Cain was always losing? Was, was Abel favored over his parents? Was this a pattern where Cain just never felt like he was good enough? We just don't know. Abel, for whatever reason, his offering was accepted, and Cain was not happy, as none of us would be happy if that were the case. Since we don't know much about what happened and why that is, we are simply going to approach this with the fact of something in the offering did not please God, and we're going to come back to that. I think later Scripture gives us an idea why, but this text itself does not. We'll come back to that in a minute. But what I do want to spend just a minute looking at is verse 7. It says, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, this brings us back to what we talked about in the last couple of weeks, which, to be honest, I thought I'd get a little more pushback from people. I haven't. I don't know if you're just afraid to push back or if you just 100% agree with me or not. But one of the things that I believe about the, the first uh, or the second chapter of Genesis, why was the tree put in the garden of good and evil? Because when God created and put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there, he said it was good. We read it's bad. If God hadn't put it there, sin wouldn't have entered into the world. If God hadn't had the prohibition, sin wouldn't have entered the world. Why would God do that and say that this tree that would cause so much damage to humanity from that moment on, why would he put it there? And my belief and my understanding is that God built us with the the reality that we need the tension so that we must have the requirement to have to exercise restraint in life in order to live a full life. Restraint or discipline is just a part of God's design for a full life. Which is interesting because that's not the way we want to live life. Most of us live our lives working to the point where we no longer need restraint nor discipline. I have enough money. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I just live my life. I do whatever I want. I have no limitations. I have no boundaries. That's the life I want. And yet, that's not the life God designed us for. Which, interestingly, those that achieve that type of life typically do not enjoy it once they get there, which is interesting. The number of the super wealthy that are miserable. The relationships that are broken. When you get a, a glimpse of what their life is like behind closed doors, and no one would want that life, even with the wealth and fame that comes with it. Usually, a life without boundaries or restraint is not a healthy life that anyone enjoys. But we don't really enjoy restraint either, do we? I don't really like having to discipline myself. I like for things to come naturally. Not that I have to make myself do them, but that is a part of what we see not only in the garden, but this is exactly what God is saying to Cain. 
he is continuing that exact same theme in verse 7 when he says, it's desire, that desire to sin, it's contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You must restrain yourself from the temptation that is constantly crouching at your door. Now, I shared with you last week that we've got, a, we've got a little bit of a PR issue in the church in regard to this because one group of people that doesn't struggle with talking about discipline is the church. The problem is not that we talk about discipline. The problem is that many times our talk about discipline is very self-serving and is not in any way following God. I want you to behave a certain way as our congregation I want you to show up a certain amount of times. I want you to give a certain amount of money. I want you to act a certain way. And I'm going to be on you if you're not. Now, the church is good about that. Because we'll let you know if you've messed up, right? Can I get an amen? All right. Quiet amen. I don't want anybody to know. But yeah, I agree with that. The church, and many times, has taken discipline to a level where we want you to abide by our rules and the way we want you to be. And yet... We must talk about the fact that God has built into each of us the need to live disciplined lives. That's what he's saying to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. You must exercise discipline. Restrain yourself from practicing sin. If you believe that you are going to get to a place in life in which sin no longer has any power over you, I will tell you that has not been my experience, nor has that been the experience of any serious believer that I know. Jesus himself did not say you will never commit another sin. Jesus simply said your sins will be covered by my blood. This is a temptation that we all face. This is a discipline we must all exercise. And this is something that we all will fail at from time to time. This is the warning to Cain. You must exercise discipline. As I've said also before, discipline is not just the thing that God expects of us to live a full life. What I have seen in others, your quality of life very much is determined by the discipline that you exercise within your life. Those who exercise no discipline, and while this is not true 100% of the time, I would say it's at least 95% of the time. Those who do not exercise discipline are always struggling. You cannot be financially free without discipline. Not unless you're so wealthy you just can't spend enough money. You can't spend it all. I would would like to try that. That has not been my experience in life, and I don't think I'm ever going to get to try that. I remember if if you grew up when I did, watching Brewster's Millions, I always thought that would be the best life ever. Richard Pryor was given an amount of money. He had to spend so many millions in order to get the full uh, prize, which is so many millions more. But in order to do that, he had to spend everything within so many days. It was a hilarious movie at the time. Probably not now, but it was then. (laughs) I always thought, wouldn't that be the life? Like, Mark, you just got to spend all kinds of money. And the reality is is that you don't find that freedom without discipline. This is what Scripture says. the, the, The debtor is slave to the lender. There's so many areas in life that that happens. 
It may be the same if you have no, no boundaries with your schedule, no margin at all to do anything healthy because you filled it with everything else. Without discipline, you get overwhelmed by your schedule and you want to just give up. There are so many places in life that discipline makes life more full and complete. What some people would like for the church to do is to remove this language and to stop talking about this because the world really does want to live a life without restraint. But there is not health in that life. So you must exercise discipline or restrain yourself from practicing sin. That's what God is saying to Adam. That's the reason the tree was put in the Garden of of, uh, Eden. And then let's continue on with verse 8. What happens next? This is the part of the story you know. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, does that sound similar to something else that has just happened? Sin enters in. Now, the work in which you have found yourself so good at and that you have enjoyed and you have found purpose is now going to become very difficult. It is no longer going to provide for you in the way that it had before. This is exactly what we see God saying to Adam the exact same thing. The result of sin is that life gets harder. Now, when we come to this moment, at least for Cain and for Adam and Eve, as their son Abel has now been killed, we're entering again into another phase of uncreation. Things enter into chaos. Things get hard. Life gets difficult. You may be in a moment of uncreation right now within your life. Something's falling apart. Finances are falling apart. Health's falling apart. Life is just not what you thought it was going to be. You are, you know, you're mourning the fact that the life you always hoped you were going to have doesn't seem like it's going to work out. Or maybe things just aren't, uh, doors aren't opening that you hoped would open. Maybe doors are closing that you always assumed would be open. You may be in a period of uncreation. And one thing it is important for us to see is that God is still moving in those moments of uncreation. And his desire is to enter into another moment of recreation. But we will get there in a minute. Here's the question I want you to do. And like we've done the last few weeks, I'd like for you just to take three or four minutes to get together with the people around you. And I would like to ask you this, and I would do not give the Sunday school answer. You know what the Sunday, we don't have Sunday school here, but you know what the Sunday school answer is? That's the low-lying fruit, right? That's the obvious. So I want you to take a little time to go a little deeper. Here's your question for today. What pushed Cain over the edge? Okay? You now have all the scripture that says what happened. There's no other contextual scripture that's going to shed any more light than what you have now. So there's going to be some conjecture here. Let's give each other grace in that. But I would like for you to struggle just for a few minutes with those around you with this question, what pushed Cain over the edge, okay? Take three or four minutes just with the people around you. You can move if you want, and then I'd like to hear what some of your thoughts are.
minute or so. Kind of finalize your thoughts. All right, it sounds like everyone's quieting down. All right, what do you think? What pushed Cain over the edge, Caitlin? He was feeling rejected. Okay? I think that, yes, absolutely. Okay, so we had a discussion. All right. So we sometimes read this as this one thing happened. You're saying, I think correctly so, this probably was more the straw that broke the camel's back than an isolated incident. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, okay, good. I think it, I like it. I like where y'all are thinking, where it's going. What, what else? Don? Yes, good. Christina?
Good. 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 Why don't you just come on up here and finish the sermon? Because you could. That's good. Very good. I'm not being sarcastic. That was, No, I would not. Wow. You were doing so well there. You were doing so well. And we just, that's, we're moving into uncreation, right? Anyways. All right. Good. Very good. Thank you, Christina. What else? Anybody else? Amy? Could be, could be, and that is a that is a common interpretation of events. It could be. I have a question. Okay. So, um, in Ro- I know this is like Romans is like after Jesus, but it literally says the wages of sin are death. So. Oh. Like, <laughs> if you bring, what I've always thought about that is, um, God accepted Abel's offering because it was a living thing and it died and throughout. Yes. Okay. So, so I'll tell you we're going to move in that direction in just a minute. However, in this particular instance, instance, we don't really have a preference of a living versus and and even even once the law does come in, there are offering there are different types of offerings. Not all offerings are based on some something dying. But so, but in this case, this is again this is one of the places that scholars. Uh, they have really just and and this this interpretation that Genesis one through eleven was written roughly sixth century A.D. during the Babylonian captivity. This is one of the places where they get that because the the uh, the language of offering hasn't has not yet entered into the story of the Hebrews. Uh, that's not going to happen until Moses. That's where that comes from. But that doesn't mean that that necessarily is true. Absolutely, God could have just said, "I want you to. I just want you to bring me an offering." And we don't know what that is. But when we read into more of what the, we do understand about offerings, that's where we, we do have to take, be a little careful because it's still, they're still not under that system based, based on this passage. But much of what you, everyone is saying is absolutely true. And sometimes when we read Scripture, we'll read this story and we're like, Cain brought an offering. It wasn't as good as Abel's, and God got mad, and then Cain got mad, and then Cain killed Abel, and then it was just all bad, bad, bad. But when we go to Scripture and we say, you know what, (laughs) there's more to this story here. There's more going on here than just that face value instance. And I like that many of you are saying that there is likely something more deep-seated going on behind the scenes with Cain that it wasn't just this one incident. But instead, what is likely is that Cain has been fostering some kind of anger or resentment. It's possible that Abel was more favored, which it would parallel somewhat with the story of the prodigal son. Those things are possible. It doesn't say that, but they certainly would. It would not be hard for us to read that into the story. What we know about people, what we know about ourselves. And even though this was a different culture, people are still people. I mean, people then are just like people today. We're a little different, and we understand things a little differently and think a little differently, but our, our drives, our inner drives are all pretty much still the same, even, even then, that far back. 
And so as we look at Cain, the reality is something else has been going on. And for whatever, whatever else has been happening, this final rejection from God is the thing that pushes him over the edge. But it was likely the straw that broke the camel's back. It was not the whole thing. And so as we look at this and, and what pushed him over the edge, it, this would be a good question for us to ask ourselves, what pushes me over the edge? You know, rather than just look at Cain, because if, if I were to say, just if I were to stop you on the street and we weren't already talking about this, right? And I would say, Cain and Abel, who do you associate with more? I doubt many of you would go, Cain, because if you did, we'd be like, okay, all right, so why, why is that exactly, <laughs> you know? Yeah, we've all had a Cain moment. We've all had a Cain, hopefully not, you know, literally a Cain moment, but... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. What if we were to jump ahead? Part of the takeaways of this is in each of each of us, we maintain the ability to be either Cain or Abel. And it's silly for us to say, I'm not, I'm never Cain. Of course we are. Now, maybe we don't let our anger or rejection end in killing someone. And yet what Jesus says is that if you hate someone, it's exactly the same thing. <laughs> you know, that's just like killing someone. So we do read this as there's something else going on with Cain that this moment capped it off. And we're going to come back and give you a sneak peek. We're coming back to the place where we understand that God is not just looking at the offering. And it is possible that the offerings were exactly what God had asked for by both of them. It's also possible that Cain, working the ground, looks over at his brother who's keeping the sheep. And he just, every time I look over there, he's just sitting there, like doing nothing. And I'm over here plowing the fields. And, you know, because of, you know, dad having to eat from that, you know, tree one's supposed to eat from. And mom, this would have been a lot easier. But now I'm working hard over here. And he's just like sitting over there, you know, because. And there's any number of things that could have happened. We don't know what happened, but certainly he saw Abel as someone who was a threat to what he wanted in his own life. And if he couldn't have it, neither can Abel. So we certainly see that within him. We certainly see that for Cain, there is some level of competition with his brother. There's some level of jealousy that's that's been working up here, and this capped it off. But there are lots of things, and I really like a lot of what you guys came up with when it comes to sin grows. Sin may start small, and it's just this quiet little voice, but it, it grows and builds and will push you to places that you would never want to go. Here is Cain's response to what God has just said to him in chapter 4, verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. <clears throat> Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. I want you to hang on to that for later. 
Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. I had struggled with these names too. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, which I find this really interesting. Just so much of the development of what we would have considered progress happens through the lineage of Cain. And Ada bore Jabel, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Now, interestingly, some of these names... When we name a child today, you may have gone through a different process as from other people. But, you know, you can go out and, and some of you who have babies... You know, you can buy, get, go out and get the baby name book. Anybody do a baby name book when they had a baby? Yeah. Yeah, you go out and find the baby name book. What's a good name? You know, <coughs> for Deidre and I, we didn't, we didn't want to name any of our kids what um, everybody else was naming their kids at the time. And so we thought at times we picked names that were different and only to find out that year that, well, that became the most popular name that year. How about that? We didn't mean to do that. Some of you, you know, you passed down names from a, another relative, from a father, from a mother, grandmother, grandmother, grandfather, somebody who was meaningful to you and you wanted to kind of pass on their lineage. For some, it was, it was the meaning of the name and you really wanted a biblical name and, and you wanted to you know, start from the very beginning trying to align their character with someone that you saw in Scripture and you really wanted them to emulate that person that you saw in Scripture. There's, there's many different ways we choose names today, but many of the names that we find in the Old Testament are, are very much intentional based on what they mean. Not just that it's a good name. And, and in fact, we have some instances that we're going to see in, in chapter 12 in which God actually changes someone's name as an adult. We see that with Abraham and Sarah. They both have different names. And God says, now you will be known as because their names matter. If we go through this lineage, it's interesting what some of these names mean. When we talk about Adam, as we've already said, Adam literally means man or humanity. So when we sometimes interpret Adam, God may also be talking about people. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Canaan or Kenan means sorrow. Mahaliel means the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means despairing. And Noah means rest. So as we look at some of these names, even the characters in which God is using in these first 11 chapters are beginning to tell another story that may have been lost if you don't put all the pieces together. God totally works this way. The way he tells stories often spans many generations, even though we want the stories quick and concise. I don't know about you. There are some TV series that I will not watch until they come to Netflix because I don't want to wait a week between episodes. Is anybody else like that? Like, I want the whole story right now, right? I, like, this one's over. I want to watch the next one. And, and so I want to get them all at one time. But that's not how God tells stories. 
God tells stories over lifetimes, over generations. Some of the things that are happening in your life, you're like, God, does what you have called me to do matter? Is the thing that I'm doing, does my life even matter? And if God were to sit down and speak to us to our face and reveal everything to you, likely he would say, what I'm doing with you right now within this life is to tell a story that is going to last long after you're gone. Now, that may or may not give us any satisfaction whatsoever. But that is how God works. See, God is a master storyteller. And he tells stories that aren't finished yet that began in Genesis chapter 1. Your life, even in the moments in which you wonder, do I matter? Does my life matter? Does my sacrifice matter? Does the thing that I'm doing matter at all? Yes, it matters. But if you only view it in the sense of, I need to see the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story in a concise moment, that's not the way God tells stories. And you are a part of a story that you may never fully know the ending, at least in this life. But that doesn't mean God's not using you as a significant moment in this story. We also see, and just following our trend, we see then another moment of kind of recreation. We move from creation to uncreation with the punishment of Cain. Now we're moving back to recreation, and we're going to jump this time to verse 25. And this is Adam and Eve. This is a moment of recreation for Adam and Eve. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son, called his name Seth. For she said, God has a, <coughs> excuse me, appointed for me an, another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. At the, at the time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, people are now calling on him. There's been a period of kind of figuring out we're out of the garden, and now they're calling on him. This is a moment of recreation. And there's another question. I'm not going to ask you to discuss this, but I want you to think about this this week. And you don't really have to think that much about it because I'm going to give you what I think and then you may disagree with me. <laughs> the question is this, did Cain get away with murder? Did Cain get away with murder? Like today, you kill your brother, you don't just, you don't sell them. Okay, so now you have to leave and you've got to find a new career. Okay, that is not, does not sound like a good punishment for murder to me. Does that sound like a good punishment for murder to any of you? If you're a murderer, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds good. I will move and get a new job. Done. You know, that sounds like a good thing, but it doesn't sound like this is consistent with God's work, does it? Doesn't seem consistent with the way God works later. In fact, um, whenever we read in Leviticus 24, 17, it says this, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Well, that's not what you said to Cain. (laughs) You told him just to move. And that doesn't seem consistent. Is this the same God? Has God changed his mind? What's happening here? In Genesis chapter 4, we're going to jump back to verse 23. We skipped this section. But this is what happens immediately after Cain has basically expressed his distaste at what has just happened. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man. For wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now, if you remember what we just read a minute, you go, wait, what? So there's two responses when you read this little section, like, okay, why is this here? And is Lamech just like a bad egg? I mean, like, did he just, 
follow after Cain's example. What is, why is this even in here? This is like this, we just kind of swerve. We're, we're headed in a way and, and we've got a good ending to this story. And then we, what is this? And so as we look back, there's actually this legend. It's a, the legend of Lamech. And this legend is one that was told by many of the same uh, scholars that wrote the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the original text of the Old Testament being translated into Greek. And as they read this, they put together pieces of the story that they say there's something else going on in this passage that I, that I think everyone's missed. And, and they are in a different culture and in a different time, in a different way of seeing these events. And this is how the legend of Lamech goes. The word ish is the Hebrew word for man. Now, this is the same word that's used to describe Cain and to describe the man in which Lamech has killed. So in Genesis chapter 4, the last part of chapter, uh, verse 1, Genesis 4, 1, says, I have gotten a man, talking about Cain, with the help of the Lord. Uses the word, Hebrew word ish. Lamech uses that exact same Hebrew word to describe the person in which he has killed. Genesis chapter 4, verse 23, that last part says, I have killed a man, Ish, for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And the way the legend goes is that the man, Cain, is the man who was killed. You may be thinking, well, Mark, that's a stretch. That's a real stretch. And I would agree with you. However, this is how the theory goes. And I, to be honest, as we look through the whole of Scripture, it's not too far-fetched that this is why this is here, <clears throat> and this is what has happened. The theory is, is that when we read the translation, that we have misunderstood the translation of this original text, not saying that God decided to protect him from being killed, but instead, God has put a bounty on Cain's head because if you murder someone, you must die. You think, well, that's not what it says. And I would agree with you. Based on our modern translation. But the writers of the Septuagint, and we're talking 1st, 2nd century A.D. We're talking, you know, 100 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So we're talking a long time ago. These are people steeped in this culture. And this is how it goes. Our constant reading of this is typically, I'll make sure anyone who kills Cain gets seven times the payback. We see that in Genesis 4.15. And what Lamech says then is, ah, I, I murdered someone. I'm going to get seven times, 70 times the payback. Because the way we interpret in our modern translations is, whoever kills Cain will be paid back 70-fold. And he's saying, oh, now I've killed someone. I'm going to be paid back 70-fold. What? Well, who'd you kill? Becomes the question. And so what those early writers of the Septuagint said, and what they believed, was that we have misunderstood exactly what this means. We've misunderstood an illusion that's happening within the original story and the original context and the original language that is being lost in its translation into Greek. And that is that God is not saying that you will get paid back. What they said is, God is saying anyone who kills Cain gets seven sins forgiven. 
And what Lamech is saying is, thanks to Cain, I got my revenge seven times over. Now, as you leave here today wondering what I want you to take away from this is really nothing more than a, hmm, that's interesting. I really don't want you taking any more away from that. And I certainly don't want you going out telling everybody I said that Lamech killed Cain. But I will say many scholars believe that Lamech killed Cain. That's exactly why that is in here. And that God was not saying, I don't want you to be killed. But because God's common stance against murder was, a murderer should die. That Lamech is the one that did it. That is the legend of Lamech. That our sins eventually are not only found out, but there are consequences we cannot outrun. So it's a legend of Lamech. I think it's interesting. I don't think that's the big takeaway. These are the takeaways for today, and I'm going to go through these kind of quickly. I think the takeaways for me, and, and maybe for you, maybe you have some different takeaways from today. Number one is this, whatever we offer to God must be offered in faith. That's a big takeaway. And we get that not from this passage, but we get that actually from Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, Though he died, he still speaks. Now, in this comes a deeper understanding of the action is not as important to God as the motive. And that's where he, this is the exact passage that we often get the interpretation that he didn't give a good enough offering. He took a shortcut. He didn't provide what he was supposed to provide. Maybe it wasn't the first fruits. But regardless, what it says about Abel is that Abel's gift was accepted because of his faith, which we can in turn understand that Cain had a lack of faith. Now, rather than us start measuring our faith in the sense of, do I have enough? I would just simply say this, God sees the inner motives of our hearts and they speak louder than our actions. We can fool people with our actions. We cannot fool God with our actions. And this is an important takeaway for this passage. Whatever we offer to God must be offered in faith. I think another takeaway from this for me personally is that righteousness matters to God. Righteousness matters to God. How we live our lives, the actions that we partake in, they do matter to God. We read this in 1 John chapter 3. So we went through this a few weeks ago or a few months ago when we were going through the epistles of John. <clears throat> Verse 12 says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out to death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, the way in which we live our lives matter to God. And they matter to us. If we're honest. The way in which we live our lives matter to God and they matter to us. Interestingly, the movement of those following Jesus in the beginning were called what? Do you remember? 
the way. There's a way. And then there's all these other ways. But there's a way. And so the way we live our lives matters to God. And it ultimately matters to us. And as we put some of the pieces that we've already assembled in these first four chapters of Genesis, what we find is that God has set us up to live in a certain type of way that brings health and wholeness. And when we choose another way, what we invite is chaos and uncreation. So the way we live our lives does matter. We know through Christ that that way is imperfect for us. It was perfect for Christ. It is, it is imperfect for us. And so we are not on the path of living perfect lives. We are on the path of living forgiven lives and seeking to the best of our abilities to follow that way. As I already mentioned earlier, and you guys already pointed out, you have the potential to be Cain and or Abel. And listen, I'm good at this. I can do both in the same day. I mean, I have this down. I don't know about you. I could be Cain one minute and Abel the next. We have the potential for both within us. And if we deny that, then I guarantee you're going to walk in the steps of Cain more than you would want to admit. Finally, Jesus actually comes into this story, and you wonder, well, where in the world did that happen? Well, it happens in Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are in, enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits, of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, do you remember what did Abel's blood cry out for what? Somebody said it. I heard it. Justice. The text says that Abel's blood cried out for justice. But we, what we read about Jesus' blood is that it covers us and forgives us of our sins. So the, there is the comparison made in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's outside of just being the cry for justice or even the cry um, for righteousness is the cry for being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, that he is our Savior and that he provides us the, the way to be whole and to heal and to follow the way. <clears throat> both were innocent, but both their blood brings two different things. Abel's blood has been talked about for generations, but Jesus' blood is better than Abel's. All right? And the last thing that I want to leave you with <clears throat> is, and this is going to be a constant reminder throughout this entire series, God is still recreating even in this story the the legend of lamech is so interesting because we have no other place that talks about the death of cain we don't know really much else about him after this there's a lot of conjecture a lot of guessing a lot of well probably what happened was we don't know 
But that is, would be an interesting cap to the end of the story of Cain and Abel, that, that Cain's descendant, Lamech, actually is the one who killed him. If you want to go back and research that, there's actually a whole theology behind this legend of Lamech. It's very interesting in which, that it, the, the, as the story goes, Lamech didn't even mean to kill him. <laughs> but that instead it was an accident, but we're not going to get into that. All that's conjecture. We don't know that that's the case. It does make sense looking at the whole of how God has worked and how God is going to move as they are delivered out of Egypt, that rather than reading, I'm going to protect you so that you never die, it is possible that God was saying, your sin will have a consequence that ends in your death. Um, But again, We take that based on just the interpretation of some scribes back in the first century A.D. All right? As we leave today, the story of Cain and Abel is not typically considered one of the more inspiring stories of Scripture, and yet it gives us hope that we can follow a better way. It does remind us that our restraint is important. There's also a piece of this to remind us that there are people all around us that are hurting. There are canes all around us that need somebody to come alongside of them and encourage them. And there are times that we ourselves need to look in the mirror and recognize, I need to change my own behavior. Because there is sin crouching at the door, ready to pounce. And we must rule over it. Father, God, I thank you that you are God who loves us And brings us redemption through Christ. I thank you that the blood of Jesus is better than the blood of Abel. I pray that for those in this room that are identifying with one or the other, that you would bring freedom to us. You would help us to not only be on the path of following the way, that we would be on the path of wholeness and health. For those that are experiencing creation right now within their lives, we are excited. We praise you. We are thankful for that moment of good things, whether that be children coming into the family, whether that be uh, life is just going well at at work or at home or with friends. Uh, This is just a good time of life. For those experiencing that moment of chaos or uncreation to remind us that you are still with us, you are still here, you are with us through it, and there is purpose in that chaos just as there is in those moments of creation. And Father, I pray that you would keep us focused on what you are continuing to do and where you are taking us moving forward. We thank you that you are taking us to a place of recreation again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.